0: Welcome to episode 2, season 2 of the African Literary Podcast. I'm your host, James Murua. It's Black History Month in the US. And I'm black, so I guess all of us have to celebrate Black History Month. In Kenya, there are a few people who are celebrating it formally. St. Paul University in Limuru has been hosting a series of events, one of which was a keynote address by Mukoma Wangugi. His address was on Africans and African-Americans, and he is eminently qualified to give this keynote because he is both an African and an African-American. He gave the speech on Thursday, February 7th, 2019, on the struggles, on the challenges, on the solidarity between the two communities, which is actually one community, and he gave some solutions of what he thinks could be the future. This keynote was recorded at this event. We apologize for the quality of the of the audio. It's the best we could do with the equipment we had. But like they say in Sunday school, don't listen to the voice, listen to the message. I hope you enjoy it.
1: Uh, good afternoon. Uh, thank you, Dr. Tabula, for that introduction. I have no more so I can ask you to repeat it again so I can hear you? <laughs> no, yeah, no. It,
0: it,
1: yeah, it gives me great pleasure to be here, not only to, on Black History Month, to be talking about uh, African and African American uh, relationships, uh, political and literary and so on and so forth, you know, but also because Lemur is my home. Right? You know, so I'm based in Cornell University in Ithaca. But actually, I went to school uh, in Tigoni Primary School, then went to Genia just down the road. Uh then went to Kalunga. Uh, I'm from Getoga for those of you who are familiar with the area. So, <laughs> so so there's another pleasure really just to be here, you know, to hold a conversation with you about uh, something that, that I you know that that also defines who I am and who I'm becoming, you know, the questions of identity and blackness. Uh I wanted to begin by reading you a quote from Oprah Winfrey. Um, you might be you might know that Oprah Winfrey opened a, a school in South Africa, a thirty million dollar school, right? And then when she was asked, uh, why open the school in South Africa, she said, yeah, why open the school in South Africa as opposed to, let's say, Harlem or, you know, in a black community in the United States, she said, okay, if you ask the kids what they want or need, they will say an iPod or some sneakers. Miss Winfrey told Music Magazine referring to visits with students in inner city schools. No, uh, so she said, uh, in South Africa, they don't ask for money or toys. They ask for uniforms so they can go to school. Right. So already with that example you can see she's, she's saying you know, African kids are more industrious and so on and so forth and referring to African-American kids as wanting iPods and sneakers and so on and so forth. Uh, so that's just a quick quote. Uh, let me now talk a little bit about Maya Angelou. Um, she was in Ghana, as most of you might know. Uh, and I'm, I'm referring now here to her book called uh, uh, All God's Children Need Traveling Shoes uh, about her time in Ghana in the, in the early 1960s. So anyway, she narrates. So she's a black American. She's narrating how she went to uh, now she's in Accra, Ghana, and she's looking for a job. So as as a journalist, so she asks an African receptionist at the Ghana Broadcasting Corporation whom she should see, right? You know, she's looking for a job, so so she's asking, uh, you know, yeah, who can I talk to to get a job? Um, The conversation turns out to be frustrating to say the least. The receptionist, often in Salvo, is, why don't you know whom you want to see? And after I back and forth, the conversation ends with Angelou telling the receptionist, you silly ass, you can take a flying leap and go straight to hell. To which, <laughs> to which the receptionist promptly responds, American Negroes are so crude. Angelou continues, I stood kneel to the floor, her knowledge of my people could have been garnered from hearsay, and the few old American movies which tucked which black characters as awkwardly as the blinded attached paper, attached paper tales to donkey caricatures. In other words, when the, sec- when the African Art Secretary saw Angelou, she seen an image of Angelou as formed by U.S. racism. Angelou thinks more about this and she says, The woman's cruelty activated a response which had developed under the ex- ex- exacting tutelage of masters. Her brown skin, full lips, white lung nostrils notwithstanding, I had responded to her as if she was a rude white sales clerk in an American department store. But if Angelou's interaction with the African secretary is mediated by whiteness, so is that, so is that of the secretary. Had he been a white man or a woman asking the same questions, you can be sure the receptionist would have ever been helpful, right? And most of us can relate, <laughs> you can relate to this if you go to, uh, I was in South Africa some time back. Uh, yeah, and I went to a restaurant, you know, and I waited, nobody came to wait on me then. You know, then I was like, okay, let me just see what's going on. Let me observe. Let me not even say anything. Let me observe. Right? Then white families would come. They'll get served. Sometimes they'll have even five waiters. You know, <laughs> you know, serving them. So I just sat there. You know, I'm sitting there. thinking, okay, what's going on here? What could possibly be going on? Because it's not like the waiters were looking at me, and, you know, and with any hatred or, or anything like that. It's just that I was completely invisible to them. So and eventually, I called the manager because right, I was hungry. <laughs> I had to stop my observation. <laughs> So, yeah, so I called the manager, the manager of course was white, you know, and then the manager called them and then suddenly I had five black waiters, you know, and then they offered me a free drink for my troubles. Anyway, but, but the point is that there are ways in which, uh, for in this situation with Angelou, right, uh, and this African receptionist, that they're, they're not really seeing each other, right, they're not really seeing each other because for Angelou, and generally for African Americans growing up in the U.S., they are taught very negative images of Africa, the same images we complain about, you know, the Africa of starvation, the Africa of war, the Africa of hunger, and, you know, and the Africa of, you know, occasional bloodletting, and so on and so forth, you know, unpoliticized uh, violence. Conversely, for the, uh, for the African secretary, she has seen Angelou through the eyes of racism as well, like she has seen Angelou as a... Well, as a person who, you know, the same stereotypes we have about African Americans that we get we get through the media. You know, they're lazy, they don't take advantage of the American dream, they are violent, they are vulgar, they are loud, and so on and so forth, right? So in a way, when they were looking at each other, it was as if they were looking at each other, you know, at each other through the veil of racism. Uh, to give you a quick, a quick personal example, right, you know, so, I, was just, I just started school college, at Albright College uh, in Pennsylvania, and this was the first semester, so I mean, we're, you know, we're first year, what do first years do? We party, right? <laughs> well, I don't know about here, but uh, yeah, but you know, that's what you do as a, as a, as a first year student. So, so I, I was at this party, and uh, I'm standing by a keg of beer, and uh, an African-American fellow student who's also a first year came up to me, and, she, and, and he asked me, where are you from? Uh, and I said, uh, no, he asked me, are you from Africa? Then I said, yeah, but really I'm from Kenya, right, you know, because Africa is not a country, as they say. Uh, then he asked me, do you live on trees? Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so and, you know, and I was so angry, right? I was so angry, you know, and we started yelling at each other. You know, we have never met before. We are strangers, right? We had, before that moment, we had never met before. We are strangers, and yet we are, we are, we are at each other's throats. Um, and I, I, often I go back to that moment because had it been a white student who had asked me that, Right? Uh, maybe I'd have, I don't know, maybe said, you know, like, the airport, or whatever, right? Or maybe I'd have explained. You know, I had a friend of mine, uh, Peace uh, because that question used to come up, up a lot in the 1990s, so <laughs> when, you, when you'd be asked, you know, do you live in, in trees, you'd say, yeah. In fact, our president lives on the tallest tree, so. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so I often go back to that moment and ask myself, how is it that two people who I never met before uh, could, within seconds, almost come to blows, right? And what happened immediately after that, before actually now we could you know start fighting, uh, an older, I guess a second year, I think she was a second year uh, African American student, you know, came, came and gave us a quarter talking to, right? You know, she's like, hey, can't you see you guys, you're just acting out racism? And she was so angry, right? You know, cause, you know, for us she could see what we were doing, right? You know, But for us, of course, you know, um, we couldn't. Um, so I often, go, I often go back to that moment because I'm interested in my reaction. Like why was I, why was I more angry at him, right? Uh in ways that I wouldn't have if he was a white student. You know, and part of it has to do with even though, you know, there is that sort of tension, right? Even though there's that sort of tension, there's also a need between the two the, the, the two the two groups, uh African Americans or black Americans and Africans to connect. Right? So it's almost um let, let me put it this way. If a stranger insults you, you're like, well, okay, sure. You know, but if a relative does, your reaction is different, right? It's more, it's more cutting and more deep in. So, it's also so in addition to thinking about why uh, and and reasoning that because we are seeing each other through the eyes of racism, that's why we almost came to blows. Then I've spent some time now looking deeper into that. In fact, you could argue my last, um, you know, my last, I don't know, 30 years or so. I have been thinking through that moment. Actually, right now I'm working. I'm, I'm writing a, a book called. Um, somewhere between black and African where I'm thinking through these issues. Anyway, so there are several things that divide Africans and African-Americans, right? And and I'll talk about the solidarity as well because it's a contradiction, right? And the biggest one that I've found is the question of slavery, right? Uh, There's always the question of who sold who, right? Uh, Where African-Americans will argue that uh, that it's Africans who sold them into slavery. Uh, Then Africans will say, no, we didn't sell you into slavery. in fact, we aren't Africans, you know, we were, you know, we were nations. Uh, and more importantly, if you think about this question, you can go back to a debate between Henry Louis Gates. Uh, Henry Louis Gates, you know Henry Louis Gates, right? He's, a, he's an African-American scholar based at Harvard, right? Uh, he did a documentary, he came and traveled all over, all over the continent, uh, and one of the, one of the episodes uh, was on slavery, right? And then, of course, you know Ali Mazrui, right? Uh, Ali Mazri, he had also done a trilogy uh, called um, The Triple Heritage, right? So anyway, uh, so Ali Mazri accused Gates uh, of saying that his television series uh, virtually tells the world the world that the West has no case to answer. Africans sold each other. Presumably, if, if there had to be any reparations in the transatlantic slave trade, you'd to be from the Africans to Africans, right? Then he goes on, Skip Gates succeeded in getting an African to say that without, the ro- that without the role of Africans in facilitating it, that there will be no transatlantic slave trade at all. To this Gates responded, the role of African collaboration in the slave trade, though hardly a major part of my film series is anguishing to me, he, Mazrui, displays no, major, no such anguish. While intellectually I know that the kingdoms engaged in war and sold... Uh, I'm going to steal somebody's phone. I know. <laughs> Uh, Well, intellectually I know that kingdoms engaged in war and sold their enemy captives to Europeans and that they did not think of these captives as fellow Africans. Still, I wonder why the king of Damohe forced the slaves to march around the tree of forgetfulness six times counterclockwise so that they would forget those who had enslaved them into the horrors they would face on the Middle Passage and in the New World so that their souls would not return to Dahomey to haunt the guilty. He asked, does it sound as though those in Africa were unaware of the depth of suffering that the New World slavery held? Does it not suggest they felt guilty about it? You decide, but don't ask me not to wonder what in the world was on these brothers' minds when they sold other black people to these strange Europeans. You know, so you can see, and this, these are the top scholars, are, you know, these are the top uh, African, well, African and African-American scholars, you know, and they can not reconcile themselves around uh, the question of who sold who. So. In reading my Angelou's book, the one that I referenced earlier, she narrates how she's in Ghana now, right, and she's about to leave Ghana to go to Germany or wherever, right, and she decides to take a tour in northern Ghana. Uh, so she does that. She gets to a bridge somewhere, right, she gets to a bridge, there's a village above in front of it, she gets to a bridge. And she talks about how she can't cross that bridge, right? You know, she just starts shaking and so on and so forth. Anyway, they get across the bridge, you know, and uh, there are some women at the market who start yelling you know, and crying when they see her, right? So, so what was happening there, according to her, is that this was a village. I was there, actually. I'll tell you about it. Uh, it's a village called Keta in, uh, in Ghana. So according to her, this was a village that had been raided for slaves, right? So this was a village that had been devastated. Uh, for slaves, and when they saw her, right, you know, she, in the book she says they're tall. Uh, it was as if they were seeing her returning, right. Of course, they know it's not. I'm assuming they—they're not—it's not literal, right. They're not saying this is really a child who has come back. It's more of a symbolic, right? Of a symbolic. Um, uh, in, in the book I'm writing I call it a, a symbolic morning, right? Uh, because this, a village, this is a village that was raided, so maybe let's say 60-70% of its population. Uh, was was taken over slaves. Then, how does a community, um, how does a community heal itself, right, after su- suffering such trauma? They, they, that, they, that they had, that, that's the question at the heart of it all, right? So, this was a village then that, over time, had been inheriting this trauma, passing it on to, from generation to generation, right? And or oh, Angela at the same time she has questions, you know, that she needs answers for. Um, so, in a way. In a way, it's as if they help each other mourn, mourn right? And because part, you know, part of the cruelty of slavery is that um, unlike having a dead body which you can bury and mourn, you know, and so on and so forth, but slavery people just disappeared, right? So you end up in a, with these communities uh, in a space of suspended <laughs> suspended mourning, right? Um, but anyway, so, so so it's good to keep that in mind. But I'm bringing this uh, up to try and resolve the question of who sold who, right? To, add, to answer that question, really, you should talk about the communities that were devastated by slavery, to say that uh suffering, and I'm not trying to compare suffering, but suffering was on both sides. You know, the people who are, the villages who were ridden, and were left in mourning, uh, that they can never complete. And then, of course, the, the slaves who, um, you know, go on to, to experience the trauma. Um, just a quick aside before I move on. Um, so, yeah, so, so yeah, so when I got to Keta, uh, now it's a town. It's a very small town, depopulated. I don't know, I, maybe it, it was me, you know, uh, projecting my own assumptions you know, after reading my angelou. But it looked like a very depressed town, right? Uh, there's a fort, a slave fort there uh, in Keta has also been eaten by the sea, by the Atlantic, right? It's coming in and uh, eating up the town. Um, and since we're in a church, let me mention this just, you know, because I wrote about it in Twitter. <laughs> but um, what, the most fascinating thing that I saw in addition to other horrors was that for every fort, I want me to maybe like four or five forts, for every fort, there's a dungeon where the slaves were kept in appalling conditions, right? Where most of them died, and so on and so forth. On top of that, literally, on top of the dungeon there will be a church, right? This is without any. It's not the church is not a few a few meters away. It's not a kilometer. Away. It literally, it's built on top of this dungeon. Uh, so you have then you have the church, then you have the um, I don't know, like a ballroom where they would do dances and 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 trade, (laughs) and then on top of that, you have a mansion, uh, not a mansion, but you have I don't know, like a big apartment where the governor lived. Um, Yeah, so, so with with, with these unresolved, uh, unresolved uh, historical questions, with the two people seeing themselves through the eyes of racism, the perceived competition of shrinking resources, tensions in communities that house both Africans and African Americans have been on the rise. You know, so, so in the U.S. There's a lot of tension, uh, even on my own campus, right, at Cornell, there's a lot of tension between Africans and African Americans, because what, who sold who, right? And then now they, they, then here, the Africans, they're coming in, uh, you know, they're taking jobs. <laughs> then part of the other argument is that the Africans who now are in the U.S. did not suffer through the civil rights struggles, right? So, so, so the argument is, yeah, they come, they take the jobs. Uh, at the same time, uh, they did not suffer through the struggle. Um, you know, and then the Africans, on the other hand, are like, well, again, it's the same stereotypical thing, right? So for the Africans, you know, then they will say, well, you know, it's too bad you guys are not taking advantage of, uh, you know, of your own resources, you know, for we're doing it better, and so on and so forth. But when you look at, when when you look at, when when you look at the two, when you look at the two communities, right? There are ways in which the African immigrant, the first generation African immigrant, or myself, for example, right. Uh, there are ways in which they're becoming a buffer between uh, the Black Americans and uh, the white population. Right. So you end up with a. I don't know if you've heard the term the Asian model minority. It referred to how the Asian immigrants in the U.S. Uh, were seen as a model minority. They're hardworking. You know, they take advantage of resources and so on and so forth, and they behave well, of course, right? <laughs> you know, so so there are ways in which then the African immigrant. Has been put in that position of being the model immigrant. And if you're interested in these questions, you can follow up. Just Google uh, Ivy League acceptances of Africans or something, and you'll see how uh, every 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 year there will be headlines that say so and so, you know, Odionbo, you know, there will be an African name admitted to all Ivy League schools. And then there will be the insinuation in that article that this kid, you know, this black kid, did well. Um, as an immigrant, what what was wrong then with the Black Americans, right? So there are ways in which then uh, you know, that they're being, yeah, they're being used um, as, as a buffer. You know, there's something in another essay I, I wrote in for the Guardian called African um, uh, African American. I use the term for an privilege, right? Meaning that, of course, meaning that. If I get stopped by a cop, you know, of course if I get shot, then it it wouldn't matter at that point, right? You know, but generally, like Amadou Diallo, I mean, he was an immigrant who got shot. But generally speaking, there is a foreigner privilege where if, let's say, I get stopped by a cop and they hear my accent, right? I can get away with things that an an African-American would. And then, of course, that translates into jobs and so on and so forth, right? Um, You know, there's an incident that Kofi Annan, the Lord Kofi Annan, somebody who writes about him, and he's talking about how, she's talking about how Kofi Annan went to the South during the civil rights struggle, you know, and he went to a barber, he went to get, to get a haircut. Uh, when he went to get a haircut, he went to a white barber uh, who, well, on seeing him say, I don't cut nigger hair, right, I don't cut hair, hair belonging to niggers. At, at which point then Kofi Annan said, no, I'm not a nigger, I'm an African, right. And then, and, and then of course his hair was cut. Right,
0: <laughs>
1: you know, and so, um, so, so even with, from that example, you can see it, instead of him, instead of him saying, "No, i will stand in solidarity with my, you know, brothers and sisters, you know, I won't get my hair cut," right? He uses it's a loophole, if you will. He uses the a privilege to get away with it. Anyway, with my friends, we used to joke that if you get stopped by a policeman, you know, uh, you know, deepen your accent, make it as deep as you can, right? <laughs> and then eventually the cop will say, "We don't do these things here. You can go." Uh, So, and if if you're thinking about this divide, and if you want to see it in in its, uh, its, uh, I guess, manifested form, uh, you can think about how we talk about Obama, right? Uh, Obama is a Kenyan. Uh, In fact, at some point he was forced to say he's not a a, a senator from Kenya. Uh, But he's Kenyan, there's a Senator Beer, right, there's a Senator Beer. Um, And most Africans who see him as an African, right? And for most black Americans, they see him as a black American, like there's no, you know, there are ways in which we could have used him uh, as, as a vehicle for us to talk to each other, right? But each, each, part takes, each part takes what they want, and then, you know, it doesn't facilitate conversation. Though um, it turned out he was, he was a president for neither, right? He wasn't a president for Africa or a president for African Americans. Uh, but. You know, so and I can give you a quick, a quick personal example of, uh, of this divide. So when I first went to the U.S., I lived in New Jersey, you know, amongst um, a Kenyan, mostly, you know, we hang out amongst Kenyans. At some point, somebody opened a Kenyan bar in East Orange. East Orange is a black American neighborhood. And uh, so we'd go there, you know, and we'd have beers there, dance, whatever, listen to Kenyan music without any interaction with the community in which the, uh, uh, in which the bar is set. Uh, so the African-Americans would come in, I don't know, every now and then there would be a few words exchanged, you know. But one day a fight ended up breaking out, right, between the Africans and the, well, in this case, between the Kenyans and the African-Americans at, the, uh, at that bar. You know, again, all yeah, you, can, you can get a lot of these incidences. But what is interesting, though, is that in spite of these tensions, there's been a history of a great solidarity between Africans and African-Americans. And now I'll talk about that, and then uh, talk about the I don't know the pitfalls of, of all this. Um, so, African and African American struggles have a strong history of solidarity. One cannot think of Pan-Africanism without thinking of W. E. B. Du Bois, inasmuch as one cannot think about African American struggle without thinking of him. His concept of double consciousness, to be inhabited by two consciousness, consciousnesses that are opposed to each other, became a tool to look at the African American psyche what in Africa becomes a colonized mind. Pan-Africanism became a way of locating black people in the world, indeed a way for them to reclaim their, places, their place in the world. You know, and of course, Du Bois is interesting. Uh, He's an African-American scholar, a Pan-African, uh, who ended up moving to Ghana uh, with his wife, Shirley Du Bois, uh, I, I believe in the, in the late 50s. Uh, you know, and he, he started doing an encyclopedia of, uh, of black history and he ended up dying there, right? He ended up dying there and getting buried there. And same thing with his, with his wife years later. Um, so that's one example. Or take Martin Luther King Jr. right? When we think about Martin Luther King, at least, now that we're talking about the Black History Month, when we think about Martin Luther King, at least in the U.S., it's a very, uh, very watered-down version of Martin Luther King, right? I mean, he's used to sell hamburgers. Okay, maybe it's not that bad, you know. You know, but you know, but his image—he's used, you know, to sell. I don't know, IBM computers, blah 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 blah. Right there, yeah. there is in which he has been uh, de-radicalized, right? Uh, but Martin Luther King, but, they, 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 but there's also the Martin Luther King of the Poor People's Coalition. He he, he referred to himself as a democratic socialist. Um, you know, you know, he was also. Uh, one, of the, one, of, one of the major voices to start talking about sanctions against apartheid South Africa. Right? You know, so, yeah, so in a, in, a, in a 1964 London speech, uh, MLK said, he said, that, um, clearly, clearly there is much in Mississippi and Alabama to remind South Africans of their own country. Yet even in Mississippi, we can organize to register Negro voters. We can speak to the press. We can, in short, organize the people in nonviolent action. But in South Africa, even the mildest form of non-violent resistance meets with years of imprisonment, and leaders over many years have been restricted and silenced and imprisoned. We can understand how, in that situation, people feel, felt so desperate that they turned to other methods, such as sabotage, right? And when you read that passage carefully, he's not denouncing, because at that point the ANC, right, the ANC had adopted um, the arms struggle, right, so if you listen to that passage carefully, he's not denouncing it, he's saying that while, and, and, and elsewhere, that while he himself would advocate for non-violence, right? Uh, he can see how, he, we, we can understand how in that situation people felt so desperate that they turned to other methods such, such as sabotage. Anyway, he goes on, when it is realized that Great Britain, France, and other democratic powers also prop up the economy of South Africa, and when to all of this is added the fact that the USSR has indicated its willingness to participate in a boycott, it is proper to wonder how South Africa can so confidently defy the civilized world the conclusion is in, in, inescapable. That it is less sure of its own power, but more sure that the great nations will not sacrifice trade and profit to effectively oppose them. The shame of our nation is that it is objectively an ally of this monstrous government in its grim war with its own black people. Right? Uh, then you can think about other contributions between Africans and African Americans. Black power, black consciousness, right? Uh, you know, you can think of them as a conversation through black liberation theology, You know, you can think about the Black Panthers who find refuge in Tanzania and Algeria. Um, You can think about organizations such as Africa Action, which is a primarily African-American organization in the U.S. that supports, uh, that lobbies for Africa's interests. Or Trans-Africa Forum, again, again a primarily African-American organization. You know, that, and this, when Ronald Reagan would not declare sanctions against South Africa, when he would say what he, what he wanted was constructive engagement, which was to say they want to continue trading, right? Uh, it was the African Americans who, who lobbied, uh, who you know, uh, who protested, right? Uh, on behalf of that, and in fact, when Mandela was released and he, he came to the U.S. at some point, and just a quick note: Mandela was kept on the terrorist list; he was a terrorist, according to the officially in the U.S. until something like 2002. But anyway, when he came to the U.S. He did credit uh, African Americans with uh, credit uh, them for leading to the downfall of apartheid. So there are a lot of examples, um, but but there are three things uh, that I want to mention here quickly uh, before moving on. Okay, how many of you knew Malcolm X was in Kenya in 1964? Only one, one person. No, no, I mean I. I, I, I didn't know this until, until last year. I don't remember, I was, I was working, researching on my book, right? You know, and came across, actually it was a nation newspaper, I think by John Kamau, the reporter, uh, where he was talking about, but he was talking about, um, uh, he was talking about, it, and I'll talk about it shortly, Ernest and Keanu, and then he mentioned in passing that, uh, that Malcolm X came to Kenya. But anyway, he came to Kenya, also Zanzibar, Tanzania. For our purposes, uh, in, well, in Zanzibar he met with Babu, the revolutionary. Uh, in Kenya, he met with uh, Jomo Kenyatta, uh, met with Jaramogi, met with Pio Gama Pinto, went to the parliament and gave a speech. Right? So it wasn't. Do I, I spent some time in National Archives trying to find, you know, newspaper reports. I'm not a, a good researcher, but I didn't find anything. But at any rate, isn't, our question? is our question should be how is it possible, right? That. Malcolm X can come to Kenya, you know, and not as a tourist, in which case we'd be like, well, here's a tourist, so why should we know? <laughs> you know, but, but, but in his full political activist, uh, you know, mode, if you will, and even give a speech at the Kenyan parliament, right? And we don't even have a plaque or a stone with Malcolm X on it, right? Like how, it is, you know, isn't it something that should be celebrated, right? So the question becomes then for us why that history is not... Uh, is not known. Uh, then also other little things, Good Marshall, you know, the, Supreme, the late Supreme Court Justice of the, in the U.S., an African American, uh, was also an advisor when Kenya was doing his constitution in 1962. He was one of the advisors, right? Um, but let me give you some gossipy stuff because it's interesting. So uh, how many of you remember uh, Julius right? He was a minister at some point. Uh, he was, well, I think I think he's known as the first Kenyan, the first Kenyan to get a PhD. Right? He bade me to it. Okay, now I'm really joking. <laughs> no, he's not as the first Kenyan to get a PhD. Uh, he went to Lincoln University, right? At uh, Lincoln University, he was dating uh, Coretta Scott King, well, of course before she became you know King, right? And uh, then later he married. Um, you know. According to the whatever you know, the writers, uh, she rejected him because he was too political. Well, I mean, it depends on who is writing the story, though. <laughs> you know, uh, but later he married uh, a, a nurse, an African American nurse called Ernestine. You know, uh, Anestin, She became Ernestine Keanu. right? So they moved. They came to Kenya. Um, you know, when they came to Kenya, she denounced American citizenship. There is a good photograph from the Nation, from I think it was 1960 something. Of, of Keanu Ernestine, you know, holding up now her Kenyan passport, right? Uh, but what happens is, the way I read it, she was too much of a feminist, right? She was too much of a fe- feminist, and she ended up um, running afoul of, I don't know, the patriarchal powers, you know, that that we all familiar with. Um, because of that, she ended up being stripped of her Kenyan citizenship uh, and deported, right? Deported back to the U.S. Now when she was in Kenya, she started Mandalo you know Mandaloa Yawanawake, right? And so she was one of the architects of Mandaloya Wanawake, right? So what happened was after she got kicked out of the country, uh, now what's her name? Jane Kiano right? she became the wife, right? Yeah, so so then yeah, so then Kiano married Jane Kiano and then Jane Kiano became the chair of the Mandaloya Wanawake. Which became a tool of the government. Right? Any disagreements? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So um so, but I'm saying all this to capture maybe the more, you know, I'd have spent hours looking at that photograph, right, because it's a time of hope, right? Imagine if Kenya had continued right, on, on that path of, 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 I don't know, a practical pan-Africanism and also ideological pan-Africanism, right? What a different country would have, um, you know? So, but overall, though, I do not think, and, and, and that example of Malcolm X being here and us not knowing about it, uh, I do not think overall that Africa generally recognize the role African-Americans have played in the liberation of Africa. So this is a quote from the, the, the then president of Senegal, uh, uh, Wade, right? So he wrote an op-ed for the New York Times uh, called To Our Diaspora, Africa Awakening, in which he says, in part, for much, the, for much of the past half century, the role that African-Americans play in Africa has been more lip service and rhetorical fealty than reality. That is about to change, right? I've just given a few examples, you know, to show that really nothing could be further than the truth, you know. Then he says, um, "Without much notice in the United States, Africa and the role that African Americans can play in promoting its development is undergoing a profound transformation." Uh, and this was in 2007. In the past, the connection between African African. African Americans and the African continent was largely an accident of history. Not only did African Americans come to the United States in chain centuries earlier, but the civil rights movement in America came to fruition at the same time as Africa's quest for independence. Right? So, you know, it, 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 I don't know what to say, <laughs> you know, because it, it, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, uh, I've mentioned Malcolm X. When Malcolm X came. Right? He had come with the whole idea of, uh, of going to, to, to lobby the, uh, the then organization of African Unity to treat the question of Black Americans as an issue of human rights, right, as opposed to civil rights. So his, his argument was get, get the, the Africans to go lobby the United Nations now uh, and talk about the racism against African Americans as a human rights issue. So it becomes an international, so it becomes an international struggle, right? Um, you know, that, that he also went to Ghana, Egypt, and so on and so forth. Um, so in so anyway, all that to say that there has been solidarity, right, there has been solidarity between uh, struggling Africans. I can give you another quick example. Saul Plage, who uh, was a South African activist and also writer, uh, in the early 1900s, travelled all the way to the U.S. Uh, to, lobby for, uh, to lobby for black Africans in South Africa. He met with Dubois and people like Michael Garvey and so on and so forth. So, so, so it's, not, at first it's not for lack of example right um, okay one more fact then I'll continue so what is interesting about Malcolm X when, when he was in Kenya is that when he met with Pio Gama Pinto right uh, they were both killed assassinated within four days of each other right I mean not to say that I'm not trying to come up with a conspiracy theory here you know but those are the times they lived in right the more radical you became right the more uh, the more you risk you know the more you know the more you risk assassination So, but I'm fascinated by why, this is not my theory, I'm fascinated by why, then, if we have this uh, history of solidarity, why it's not known, and why then I, in 1990, would be at a party, right, would be at a party somewhere fighting somebody who asked me, an African-American who asked me if we live on trees, you know, and and, and I blame that on how we have approached change, you know, how we talk about change. So we've always seen political change as a top-down. As a top down uh, as a top down affair right if you think of W Dubois the du he had come up with the, the idea of the talented tenth and the idea of the talented Tenth, yeah you get the top I guess the top ten percentile of your population that's you know and then that then you use that ten percent to lead and then to bring everybody else up if you look at Marxism they use the Vanguard theory right the Vanguard theory also has that sort of connotation right it's a small group of people leading uh, the, the, the masses into well, into, into a, a, a revolutionary future. Uh, if you think about the French Revolution, the same thing. There's a term that the poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge uses where he talks about um, change being brought about by a small, glorious band of men, right? So and, 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 if, if you keep that model, then it means that, 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 that the leadership is not organically coming from the people to begin with, right? And at the same time, there's always the risk of a, of a small uh, group of glorious men. Uh, and, it, it, and we can talk about the gender issue when it comes to political change and revolutionary change. Uh, then it's always a, a question of a small glorious band of men than leading, uh, uh, leading, um, leading the change. So what have been the cost of some of these things, right? Have, have been invisible to each other? Uh, Malcolm X understood cause of our invisibility to each other. In a speech given at the University of Ghana in 1964, he said, of Africa, this, the most beautiful continent that I've ever seen, is the richest continent I've ever seen, and strange as it may seem, I find many white, white, white Americans here smiling in the faces of our African brothers, like they have been loving them, loving them all the time. It was said with humor, so people laughed. Um, the fact is, these same whites who in America speak in, in our faces, the same whites who in America club us brutally. Just because we want to integrate with them are over here in Africa smiling in, in your face, trying to integrate with you. But actually, what they want to integrate with is the wealth that they know is here. The untapped natural resources which exceed the wealth of any continent on this earth today, right? Uh, because we're invisible to each other, we do not we do not see we are fundamentally in the same situation. African labour and wealth has been siphoned out of the continent. African-American labor and wealth is being siphoned out of their communities. The prison industrial complex for African-Americans is a return to slave labor. And black youth in the U.S. have been criminalized in order to feed this machine. We cannot see how, we cannot see new forms of exploitation being built on old forms of exploitation. So globalization has seen an increase of wealth and the potential to eradicate extreme poverty. Yet we are seeing a growing divide where poorer nations and the poor within them are getting poorer and the wealthy nations and and the rich within them are getting richer. There is saying that, there is a saying that uh, Af- African Americans like to use that okay when, uh, when America sneezes, black America catches a cold. well, <laughs> well, America comes to Africa for her medicine, leaving Africans with the cold and so I 've already talked about um, about my fear of, uh, of Af- African immigrants becoming a buffer between uh, African Americans and white Americans, and I talk about the foreigner privilege. Um, Okay, yeah. So let me skip that. You know, so and and just briefly before before I conclude. So what happens for most, you know, African immigrants when they move to the U.S. and you know, and they have um, they have you know they have families and so on and so forth. They move their families. They tell their children because they're they're coming from Africa where then they have grown up with these stereotypes of African Americans. They tell them quite explicitly not to play or to interact with African-Americans, right? Um, So at the same time though, because of that, they end up with children who are neither African-American or African, right? You know, because, you know, for many reasons, for economic reasons, for example, you can't come to Kenya all the time with your family, right, it's just too expensive. Uh, Secondly, maybe somebody's there illegally, so in any case they can't, even if they wanted to, even if they had the money. They can't come back, so so you end up with a with a with a with a household that has two different cultures, right? You know because the kids are growing up in the U.S. Uh, in fact, uh, a few years ago, uh, my father and I were invited by a youth organization in Seattle, a Kenyan youth organization in Seattle, uh, because um, they said that you know they, they felt their generation of first first generation Africans in the, in the U.S. Uh, you know were falling out of I don't know I guess out of the rail tracks you know, so they were doing drugs, leaving school and so on and so forth. Uh, but part of it, of course, is that the, the same parent who will tell their children not to play with African Americans doesn't mean that then they give them, then they tell them, okay, now I'm going to teach you your language. You know, I'll make sure you go to uh, your country once again and visit with your grandparents, right? Uh, because if you if you disdain African Americans, then you also disdain a part of your own culture, right? It's, it's the same movement, right? So, so anyway, so then they end up with a um, With with that sort of a family situation. So, another friend of mine, you know, we were chilling, we were talking, and he said that that at some point his son was angry at him, an American born son, who told him, Yeah, you might be African, but you don't know what it means to be African American, right? So, not only do we, Africans here, need to extend our imaginations, our political imaginations, you know, and learn more about the African American struggles, but for Africans in the US as well, they need to do that. So, I don't know. So, so my, let me conclude by saying that um, that if we, if we accept solidarity is necessary, and indeed, it, it, it's, it, it's not even that it's necessary. If, if, if we agree we'll honor uh, those that who have died for the struggles of Africans and African Americans, right, Malcolm X, Pio, Pio Gama Pinto, and so on and so forth, then by definition, we need to pick up each other's struggles, Um Right now in the US, uh, there's a lot of. Uh, Uh, police killings. I don't know why we don't call them extrajudicial killings. I mean, the way in which the U.S. uses very nice language, (laughs) you know, so police killings. But really, if that was happening in Kenya, we would call them state-sanctioned extrajudicial killings and so on and so forth of young black men, right? Uh, In the U.S., there's the industrial uh, military, uh, of course, the military-industrial complex. But there's what Angela Davis calls the prison-industrial complex, which is uh, the incarceration for very small petty crimes uh, of, of black youth. Uh, who then are put into private prisons? I mean, yeah, they, they, the prison, the, the prison industry has been largely privatized, right? And then they're used for labor, right? You know, they're used for cheap labor. You know, they're underpaid, and so on, if you can call it being underpaid. Um, on the other hand, if those are the, the, just to mention a few of the struggles in the U.S., on the other hand, we can think about, for example, the U.S. foreign policy uh, in Africa, the use of drone warfare, the. I don't know if you have heard of Africa, the African Command Center, uh, which now I think is operating. It's a U.S.-U.S.-Africa Command Center, which is operating in quite a number of countries. Um, so in, in other words, uh, solidarity is formed in struggle. We have to adapt each other's courses, and in the discussions that ensue solidarity, solidarity work will help strengthen our bond. This should be the, the rallying call for African and African-Americans. Uh, Solidarity, Pan-Africanism is to be forged through action. Thank you.